Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music, music teachers. You're listening to episode 13 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and in this episode, I'm answering questions from teachers about improvisation, finger dexterity, concerts, and note reading struggles. Let's dive in. This is a special Q&A episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. So in these episodes, I answer questions from Vibrant Music Teaching members from the Facebook group, from emails I get, and from specific questions that are submitted for the podcast. The first question today came from Laura in New York, and she wrote this in the Facebook group. She said, I'm so bad at improv. How can I teach it if I can't do it? The Circle of Fifths Odyssey, that's a course, by the way, seems so cool. I have tried it on two students the first lesson, but I feel like I need to demo better to encourage them. Help anyone? So I totally hear you on this, Laura, and I wanted to mention it on this podcast rather than only replying in text, which of course I did, because it deserves a bigger discussion, because there's so many layers to this. There's the first layer, which I think is that you don't feel confident improvising, right? You say, I'm so bad at it. And I get that, but it's practice like anything else, right? I'm not a particularly amazing improviser at all. I've gotten a bit better. But for the most part, I just do it as a teacher. I'm not someone who sits down and improvises for hours and has all these cool riffs built into their fingers that they refer to. And I understand the benefit of that and that approach to it. But my approach to improv and in things like the Circle of Fifths Odyssey, what I'm really using it as as a teaching tool. And I've gotten pretty good at using it in that context more than just about creating amazing music or having students that can literally just play anything on the spot. It's not about that to me. It's about utilizing it for various reasons. So the Circle of Fifths Odyssey, for those who aren't familiar, is a course inside Vibrant Music Teaching. And I did a webinar about this recently, so you may have seen that as well. And the idea behind it is that we improvise our way around the Circle of Fifths. So we're starting at C major, improvising in C, then in G, and in D, etc. over the course of 12 weeks. And we're building it up so that students see the patterns of building up at the sharps, of the way the patterns fall on the piano, and from there, taking that to scale fingerings and chord patterns and all of that. But starting with this very freeform improvisation where they're just making whatever music they can in that key. So to go back to Laura's question, she's asking, how can we demo it better? Well, I don't demonstrate it at all. In other words, all I say to the student is, okay, we're going to improvise in the key of C. And if they're not familiar, I'll say, what do you think improvising means? Maybe they'll know, maybe they won't. And we discuss the fact that it basically just means making it up as you go along. So we're going to make up our own music in the key of C. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're going to use only the white keys to improvise with. And we can play whatever we want and make our own music using only the white keys. And then I just start my chord progression, which is just a one, five, six, four with whatever rhythm I feel like at the time and in whatever inversions I feel like at the time, and then encourage the student to join in. Now, some students will be nervous of this at first. I found if I introduce it right, for the vast majority of students, they will just jump in and try something out. The older they are at the beginner level, the less likely they are to just jump in. They might need a little bit more encouragement. 
A four-year-old will almost always just get going and they might make awful sounds, but they'll have a go and then they'll find their own groove. I don't need to give them any much more help than that. If they are playing and smashing lots of keys and they're doing that week after week, I will encourage them by saying, let's use just one finger. Let's play just one note at a time for now. And then if they play something nice in the middle of a big mess, encourage them by picking that out. It sounded really cool when you just went down, stepped down on the keys and then repeated that C at the end, something like that. Just pick out something they did that really did sound musical and they'll build it up that way. Don't be expecting it to sound great right away because it absolutely won't. And that's really not the point. The point is giving them the opportunity to experiment and to find out that there really is no wrong answers, but there are things that sound better than others and you'll find your own style with that. So the younger they are, the less I need to do. And it's more just about repeating the activity until they come up with musical sounding music. Now, older students, if they really are reluctant to jump in, one thing I love, which I don't have reason to use that much, but I do love this phrase. So Bradley Sowash, who's behind the Ear Eye Revolution blog and several other things. He has his own jazz books and all of this. Great resources. But anyway, he has this fantastic thing that he says. So if a student literally plays nothing, you set off with your chord progression and they play nothing, you still find something good to compliment them on and you say, oh, that was a fantastic use of rests there. Just to bring a little lightness into it, right? So it's just a little joke, a little playfulness. And you know, everything is improvising. If you choose to have a giant rest in a piece, that is improvising too. So if a student is very reluctant, one thing you can do is make a little joke like that and just encourage them to dive in that there really is nothing wrong. But another thing that I will do is I'll keep my chord progression going, could even just keep the left hand going with just like single notes, just to have some kind of bass line. And I'll just pick out a few notes with my right hand. And on purpose, and partially because I wouldn't do anything fancy anyway, but on purpose, I do not do anything fancy here. I use just my finger too, and I play E, D, C or something, right? Something incredibly simple that sounds like a bit of a song. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be some cool riff. And really, if you come into the right attitude, even a teenager, even an adult student is going to find that enjoyable to listen to, enjoyable to play and musical. It doesn't have to be incredible 12 bar blues all the time. It can be simple. It can be a little melody that they make using a five finger position or something like that. So if you're worried about it not sounding amazing straight away, the number one thing I would say, Laura, is don't be. It doesn't have to sound amazing. It's about the experience of it. It's about the learning we're getting from it. Yes, we want it to sound good and we want to encourage the bits that do sound good, but it builds up over time. So don't be too hard on yourself. Don't worry about you giving amazing examples. Just give extremely simple melodies and that will get you going. Okay, so I hope that helps, Laura, and that that little bit of advice encourages you to carry on because I started where you are now and I haven't come a huge, amazing distance, but I have gotten more comfortable with it. And I think that's really what's key here. The next question comes from Shona, who's in Wales. She said, so I have a pupil who's finding finger dexterity difficult. Five years old, really keen, but finding keeping fingers curved tricky and getting frustrated. I'm trying lots of fine motor activities, lots of songs and games for fingers, but have you got any other ideas? Wanting to do lots of activities for them to really help them make progress. 
Okay, so Shona, I really have to start with a couple of follow-up questions here, which obviously you can't answer. So I'll do my best to talk through the different angles that we might be talking about here. But really, we need to be asking first and foremost, what curriculum are you using and what method book or other curriculum are you using with this student? What is your approach been? And how much emphasis are you placing on this? And in particular, are they using all five fingers straight away? Okay, so I don't know what your experience is with preschoolers, Shona, or, you know, young beginners, junior infants, senior infants, that kind of thing. Because teaching a five-year-old is extremely different (laughs) to teaching a seven-year-old even. Those two years are a massive jump. And if you haven't taught a lot of five-year-olds, you might be jumping straight in. I'm not accusing you of anything, but just say you are jumping straight into a very traditional method book that uses five-finger positions from the beginning. So the first thing I would advise you to do is stop that, take it out of the mix. Because if they're jumping straight in and having to do Dozen a Day or John Thompson or Piano Adventures even, right? If they're doing something like that right from the get-go, then you haven't put in enough steps along the way for a five-year-old to develop that dexterity. So if you're not using Piano Safari already or something with a similar approach like uh, Tales of a Musical Journey or anything that encourages one finger at first, develops to non-legato touch over five fingers and then gradually, very gradually moves to legato, then I'd highly encourage you to check out something like Piano Safari would be my favorite or Tales of a Musical Journey, like I say, is a similar approach. I believe Hello Piano also has a similar approach in terms of working with one finger first and developing the arm control first. So that's the approach I would take with a five-year-old. I'd be starting with one finger, hopping around and doing lots of rote pieces and even reading pieces with just finger two in the beginning. And this is to promote, like I say, arm control, arm weight and the way they move at the piano with freedom, without tension. Because if that tension is there at the gross motor level, moving their arms, then it's very hard to get rid of it at the fine motor level. And it's very hard for them to have a curved hand. Now, moving on from there, let's say you've done all that preliminary work, like Tara, who commented on your post, had mentioned that she was using piano safari and she was doing that and she still wasn't quite getting there with her students. So in that case, Maybe you're expecting too much too soon. I am not expecting my five-year-old, my four and five-year-old students to have a beautiful round hand shape until along with reading and along with all the other things that are going on, everything all at the same time, until minimum six months would be my expectation. But I wouldn't be worrying about this all happening together until about 18 months in. Yes, I'm serious, 18 months. I want them to be able to make that round hand shape when we call for it and especially when they're not reading much earlier. And we're developing that that whole time and I'm encouraging it. But I'm not expecting it all at the same time. I'm not expecting reading two hands together with round hand shape, with their wrist at the right height and beautiful technique in every possible way. I'm not expecting all of that at the same time until 18 months in is when I start to go, okay, maybe there's an issue here. But until then, it's just about developing it in various contexts and gradually bringing all of these elements together. Now, you mentioned you're doing some fine motor activities. That's awesome. And games and games for fingers and all of that. So that's fantastic. If you want some more and you might may or may not have used these ones so far, but I'll make a few suggestions. First suggestion would be the finger rhymes, which are in the library. 
my students absolutely love these. They get such a kick out of them and it really helps them to develop their fingers and also their sense of beat and rhythm because they say them in this rhythmic way. So for example, one is dancing fingers in the air, dancing fingers in my hair, dancing fingers on my knees, dancing fingers on the keys. Okay, so we say them in this sort of poetic way, this rhythmic pattern, and we're doing the finger actions at the same time. And I guess some moving all of their fingers and in some of them they're moving individual fingers as well. So check out that sheet. That would be a great place to start. Other things you can do, of course, is things like wiggles and waggles where they're moving one finger at a time. That's a finger number game. Finger number twister when they, where they have to isolate certain fingers, place them on the board and various other games. And then there's things that just require fine motor control as part of the game. So Susan Paradis has a game where you clip clothes pegs onto either a letter to match a note name on the staff or a letter to match a key name on the piano. So those are great. Those are free on Susan Paradis's blog. And I've been experimenting with some new matching games as well. So those are going to be up on the blog in a few weeks, probably almost a month, I'd say. But to give you a quick rundown of them, the first one that I've been using involves an egg carton. So I have taken an empty egg carton, a cardboard one, not a plastic one, that would make a horrible sound for this activity. So a cardboard one, flip it over and cut little slits in the top. And then I've made cards which go on the side, they're stuck to the side. And then other cards which are on lollipop sticks, popsicle sticks to Americans, and those slot into the egg cup. So the idea here is it's a matching game. So it's working on, you know, recognizing whatever we want. And I'm going to have several sets of these up in the library, like I say, in about a month. But they're also working on putting those through the holes. So it's developing that motor control that they need. Okay, so that's a little bit about motor control. But my inkling, not having seen your student or knowing too much about your situation, is that probably what's happening is not that they need that much more fine motor control work like the separate games and all of that those can be helpful but the big thing is managing your own expectations of what their technique should look like and whether you should be expecting legato whether you should be expecting finger five to really stand on its side tip or curve properly in the beginning i'd focus more on the round hand shape not worry too much about the fingers bending backwards in a five-year-old, okay? In a seven-year-old, I'd be very focused on the firm fingertips. But the big thing that I want to establish in the very beginning of having their hand in a five-finger position is wrist at the right height, bridge not collapsing. That's the knuckle joint, right? If those two things are happening, then we will emphasize the firm fingertips more. Making sure they're bouncing from their arm, not trying to push with their fingers. I hope that helps Shona um, and if you want to give me more follow-up details or let me know if I've gone down the wrong path with this discussion here then do let me know in the group. The next question came from Rebecca also in the group. She's in New Mexico and she said I'm doing a winter concert this year. I teach voice and piano so it's combined. I have people doing ensembles, piano duets, some piano players accompanying singers etc. Since it's less formal than the end of year recitals, I have decided that I'm going to perform as well. My question for those of you who perform as well as your students at concerts and recitals, when should I place myself? Beginning, end, in the middle of somewhere? I know I'm overthinking this, but I want to one, not intimidate, and but inspire, and two, show the newer parents that I'm a performer as well. 
So I love this question from Rebecca and I really enjoyed the discussion that it prompted. I think she got some great answers, but I wanted to take it onto the podcast here because I just think it's a great thing that comes up quite regularly. And I've missed out the start of her post there, but she actually mentioned not wanting to be controversial because she knows some people don't agree with playing at student recitals. I don't think it's a huge deal either way. I used not to do it. I do now because one piano mum specifically asked me or, you know, sort of goaded me into it. She wanted to, she said, oh, we never get to hear you play or whatever. And I said, all right, I'll do it. I think she's right, you know putting myself through the same thing, especially as someone who is a very nervous performer, mostly because I didn't have to do it until I was 16. I really wasn't in any concerts or never had to play in front of anyone except an examiner, which is a very different situation. So I always have been a very nervous performer. Most of my students who start doing it at a very young age are not at all. But I think she was right in saying that, you know, I should be getting up there with them. So I've started doing it just at the end of year concert not at the middle of the year concert. And I think that's a good balance for me and for my studio. So that's the way I'm handling it for me. Now, I, of course, I'm playing duets and all of this at every concert. But for the solo performance, for the bit where just I'm playing, I choose to do it at the start. I think there are good arguments both ways. And I'm curious as to which way Rebecca goes on it. But there are good arguments Either way you look at it. I choose the start for several reasons. Number one, I do not want to wait through the whole concert knowing that I have to play. That's just me. That's just, I know my mind would be flitting back to the piece I have to play. And I wouldn't be fully concentrating on all the stuff that's going on. And it's important. And I want to enjoy my students' performances. And also when I'm playing duets, I don't want to you know, be thinking about the piece that I have to play on my own and therefore not concentrating fully and being present for the duet that I'm playing. Might sound like a silly thing, but it does make a difference to me. Another reason is it's just a natural point for me to play, in my opinion, because at the start I'll give a little welcome speech, right? And it makes sense to me that I just then sit down, say, okay, I'm going to kick us off with the first piece so no one else has to go first, and sit down, do my pieces, get up again and introduce the first student performer. That makes sense to me. The third reason, which I've sort of mentioned there, is it's a little token to say no one else has to play first because I'm going to do it. Still, there has to be a student who has to go first, and I'll always make that someone who's pretty confident doing that. So that's not a major factor for me. But the fourth factor is very important to me, and that's that with experiences of any kind, what people remember best is the end. Okay? And this goes for everything. You know, scientific studies have, to take it completely away from piano, scientific studies have looked at colonoscopies, when colonoscopies used to be much more painful than they are now, and found that if they continued it with less uncomfortable sensations at the very end, so extra time that didn't need to be there but without pain, people actually remembered it better. Even though it was longer and therefore they experienced more discomfort throughout the whole thing, the ending was not quite as bad. And that's what people remember. Whereas if you end at the very painful bit, people are much more reluctant to go back and do a repeat procedure. Okay, so what has that got to do with piano performances? Well, 
I want people's biggest memory of the performance of the concert to be my star performer, my most advanced student, the student who's worked extremely hard on some fabulous piece. Not me. I don't want them to remember my performance the best. That is not the point of the concert. So that is probably the biggest reason why I think I should be at the start. I think people should basically forget about my performance. I think it's good that I show that I'm willing to get up and do something. And I tend to use it as an opportunity also to talk about an interesting composer, a female composer from history, or a modern composer, contemporary composer that students might learn and might look forward to something that will appeal to them. And I think that's great. But if I put that at the end, that's going to be the strongest memory. And I feel more like that should be that moment in the spotlight should be given to my most advanced student, my teen or whatever, that's been working extremely hard on some fabulous piece. And I want to give them their moment to shine. So I'm curious to see which way you, you go on that, Rebecca. But I just wanted to give you my thoughts on that here. My final question that I wanted to discuss, I'm going to leave anonymous since it came through an email, so um, the person might not want to share who they are, but she said the mother seems bothered that her daughter is not reading the notes well. So this is about a student that this teacher has and the note reading is not progressing that fast and the mother has approached this teacher about this. So the mother seems bothered that her daughter is not reading the notes well and tried to tell me how to teach her. I listened. I know that note reading can be a challenge for some, but I don't push it. Her ear is well developed and technique is good. Having taught for many years, I try not to make a big deal about it. It comes. That's what I tried to tell the mom. She's a bit of a perfectionist also, and the student just can't seem to connect the notes on the staff with the name or where it is on the keyboard very well. It's been about a year of lessons. I do a lot of note recognition games and flashcards. Any thoughts on how to help her develop note reading or how to deal with the mom? So I just wanted to mention this email because it hits at something that a lot of us come up against, and that's parents trying to tell us how to teach. So that's the first half of this. Irregardless of the fact whether or not the daughter is progressing okay or not with note reading, it is not the mom's place to tell you how to teach or even what to emphasize. And sometimes when they do this, they're just being pushy. But generally, it is usually out of concern for their children. And they usually do it when they don't feel like they're being kept in the loop enough. So the first thing to do in a situation like this, in my view, is to let the mom know that you are aware of what is happening, that you have a plan, lay out your plan to her. This is what we're going to do. This is how I'm handling this. I know that you might feel like note reading is blah de blah but in my studio it happens this way and it might be different to the traditional way that you learned or that you've seen others learned. But this is the progression of skills in my studio. I'm not worried about your child's progress. Her note reading is a little bit slower than her oral work, but one area is always going to lag behind the other. That's just the way learning works. It's not always going to be plain sailing and even Stevens between every skill. And emphasize to the mom, you know, that she's doing so well in this other area. You say she has her ears well developed and her technique is good. So that's fantastic. And emphasize that that's almost the most important parts. I mean, I would say, especially the technique, that's the big thing in the first year. If you can get that going right, that's a fantastic achievement for the first year of lessons. So I would start off by emphasizing all of those points and 
explaining your plan. So don't leave her completely out of the loop. Don't just say, no, this is not your place. Say, this is what my plan is and do it very confidently where it's clear that you've thought this out, that you have a plan in place and that you know what you're doing. If she continues to push beyond that, I'd get a little bit tougher and tell her to back off, but uh, in the nicest possible way. But most parents, all they need to know is that you do have a plan. You know what's going on. You see it too. And you're not concerned. You're not worried about it. You have a plan for tackling it. The second half of this, of course, is how you actually tackle this issue. So it seems she's not relating the notes to the keyboard. So I I would suggest games such as the piano puzzle, lions, tigers and bears, even key clamber. Take it back to the piano key names. Just make sure she definitely can easily find each piano key. So key clamber, music alphabet memory, anything like that. And then just keep relating things back to the piano. You also might like to check out that section in the Piano Physicians Clinic. So you could look at actually the octave disorientation videos. Even if that's not what's happening, those would be good suggestions for how to help her navigate connecting the two things to each other, um, the keyboard to the staff. But it sounds to me, for the most part, like you're not actually worried. So those things might be helpful if there's some underlying issue in your view. But after a year of lessons, not reading completely fluently, not always immediately relating things to the keyboard from the staff might not be an issue. And if you're only worried about it because the mum is bringing it to you, then you just need to let her know what the progression is and how you're tackling it and what to expect from lessons at your studio. I hope that helps. Thank you so much to all of the members who left questions in the group and in emails that I could choose from today. We had some great discussion points to talk about and I hope it was useful to everyone listening because I know these are all things that we all come up against from time to time in our studios. That's it for this week. Bye for now. Quick reminder to Vibrant Music Teaching members that the office hours are coming up this week on Thursday and Friday. You can find the details of those at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash calendar if you're a member. If you're not a member and you want to join us and get your questions answered, as well as getting access to everything the library has to offer, you can sign up at vmt.ninja.com.